What is quite interesting is looking at the rate of spin-outs when there is dedicated capital, you know, intelligent capital that is around. So Oxford is quite an interesting case study in this. I'm sure Stanford is the same, that pre there being the Silicon Valley ecosystem, what was the rate of spin-out companies? And you know, it looks like it's one, two a year. You put the ecosystem around it and then you very quickly ramp up to 20. And with Oxford, it literally was a nine-month difference between one to two to 20. I mean, it, it's just that extreme. That's Lisa Smith, Chief Executive of Midlands Mindforge, a new university venture fund co-created by eight institutions in the UK's Midlands region. And today's is a slightly different episode of the podcast as I'm bringing you a recording of a recent webinar, Treasure Hunting for Seed Pearls at Universities and National Labs. The panel featured Lisa as well as IMEC Expand partner Tom Van Houter, Gautam Fanzer from Chevron Technology Ventures and Stanford Spinout Color Health CEO Renee Ryan. Keep listening to hear a whole range of ways of increasing spinout success, from finding creative ways to bring in entrepreneurs to having corporate partners as builders rather than consumers. This is an edited version of the webinar. You can find the full version at globalventuring.com forward slash the hyphen next hyphen wave, which includes slides with interesting data. Let's start with an introduction from Renee. Cala Health was a technology that was initiated at the Stanford Biodesign Program. Back in 2014, we spun the technology out, formed a company. I was actually the first investor in the company when I was at J&J. So I was part of a corporate venturing group at Johnson & Johnson, and I supported many of our um, spin-out type investments and also later stage funding investments across the West Coast and all of the Asia Pacific region. To date, Cala has raised over $130 million. We are commercial stage. We provide a wearable uh, neuromodulation therapy for treating a condition called essential tremor and are now expanding into Parkinson's disease. And we're only available in the US as a prescription device. Um, and I'll stop there and let my, my next colleague go. Awesome. Let's move on to Tom, perhaps. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, Tom Van Houten, I'm the founder of IMIC Expand. IMIC Expand is a fund with a pretty particular focus. We support uh, companies, we invest in companies that leverage uh, IMIC expertise, knowledge, ecosystem, uh, infrastructure. For those of you who don't know IMIC, IMIC is a world-leading R&D center uh, in the semiconductor space. So anyone in the world who does anything with a chip in it, one way or another has had a collaboration or is at least knowledgeable about the value that uh, IMEC can bring from an R&D perspective. We manage out of two funds. Um, the first fund was 116 million. Second fund is close to 300 million and have a worldwide um, ma investment mandate. So looking for opportunities um, both in Europe, the US, could be Asia and Australia as well. Lisa, how about you? Hi, good afternoon, good morning, everybody. Uh, Dr. Lisa Smith. I run Midlands Mindforge, which is a fund that's backed by eight universities in the middle of England. These are research universities that rank all of them in the top three in terms of the ranking in the UK ecosystem and science. And uh, they have 50% collectively, 50% more world-class research than either Oxford or Cambridge. So a, a, a wonderful a treasure trove of intellectual property across these universities. And the fund has been set up to provide early stage funding to really accelerate the commercialization of, of, this, of this intellectual property. And my background is corporate venturing. So uh, I come to it with that sort of corporate venturing mindset of leveraging ecosystems and, uh, and really understanding the value of getting corporates in partnership to help drive POCs and things like that. Amazing. Gautam, how about you? Okay, thank you. Good morning, good afternoon. My name is Gautam Fancy. I'm at Chevron uh, in Chevron Technology Ventures, or CTV for short. What we do within Chevron is we look external to Chevron for innovation, and we do that in a number of ways. One of the ways is corporate venturing, and we are one of the oldest 
corporate venture capital groups in the energy sector. We've been around for almost 25 years now. We also do field trials with startup companies as well as small companies developing new technologies. And we also work with universities and national labs and how, how and we sort of encourage do research projects and, and look at how we can commercialize some of these technologies from the universities and national labs. And I personally I managed those relationships with the national labs. So we had started a program called Chevron Studio for last year and how we engaged the national labs. Happy to talk about it. I'll stop for now. Back to you, Thierry. Thanks, Kazam. I might actually stay on you because you did mention um, Chevron Studio there, and, and I think it really warrants talking about a little bit more. So can you give us a little bit more detail about how this works? Sure, happy to. So Chevron Studio is a program we started last year. And the key thing is, so we, as I said, we've been in corporate venture for 25 years. We work with different national labs, universities. One of the biggest challenges that we had was how do we take these national IP that's developed in the national lab and universities, and how do we scale it up? How do we commercialize these? Because a lot of good work gets done out there, right? And that's when we came about, put our minds together and said, hey, let's look at this program where we can take the IP. Who are the best people we thought that can really scale it up, commercialize it? And, and those are the entrepreneurs, frankly. So, so what this program does is we work with what we call the universities and national labs. They are, they are our technology partners. We reach out to the entrepreneurs through our networks and offer them, hey, here's the IP from the National Lab and our university. Are you interested? And if so, we, there's a down selection in the process. And if so, if once they're selected, we actually support them through some seed funding. And the hope is that we have various phases. And the plan is that if they are successful, they start all the way from the lab stage, incubation stage, scale up to a field trial. So they go through this whole process. That's how sort of you started this last year. And we're all excited about it. Amazing. You are on your second cohort now, if I um, got that right. We are on the second cohort. We had we started the first cohort. We started last September. We had the first cohort last September, second cohort. Applications for the third cohort open up in August of this year, so in, in, a, in a month or so. Brilliant. Apart from, from having the entrepreneurs in place, what are other elements that you need in place for producing quality spin-outs? I might stay on you and then I might open the question up. Sure. So, so, so when we look at it in terms of how can we make this a successful program, what, what are the elements, as you said, right? I mean, we look at it, the first is, of course, the IP, right? And, and we have the top universities, top national labs from all over the US. It's, it's, it's limited to US right now, participating in this program. But we offer one more thing to that IP is we actually take that IP and we look at it from an industry point of view. So we put the industry lens, we give it the industry insights, we curate that list, and that's what we offer to the entrepreneurs. That's something that typically the entrepreneur does not get when he's straight, straight dealing with the University of National Library. So, so we do that. And once that is done, we then provide the seed funding. So, so that's the element, we provide seed funding, but we also have connect them to a network of investors and help them sort of on their path towards towards growing. What we do not do is this is not going to be, this is not a Chevron supported startup. That's not the intent because that's not a recipe for success. We want them to be growing as an independent startup and, and we want to give them total freedom to, to do the real creative work, the entrepreneurial work. Yeah. And, and that's what we've seen is sort of leads to their success. Tom, I might move to you. You are linked to one specific research institute. Does that mean that there was already an ecosystem sort of in place, or did you also have to build that with a fund? Well, there, there definitely was an uh, ecosystem in place in the semiconductor industry. So we did have the, the benefit of leveraging the contacts, for instance, with the corporate VCs that, uh, that IMEC already worked, worked with for a, very, for a long time. But when it came to company creation, I mean, that was, was new. And one thing we've learned that was very beneficial for the efficiency of, of company creation was that you need to get into a routine of how you're going to negotiate IP deals and how you're going to negotiate spinning out companies out of specific uh, research organizations. And, and I understand that we're fortunate that we only have one 
you know, stakeholder to deal with. And I understand that if you have eight universities, that probably is eight times the effort, but avoiding that every deal in itself becomes an event, especially if the goal is to do 20, 15, 20, like we've seen in the statistics that you put forward is, is key to, um, to, to the successful creation of ventures. In addition, of course, I mean, to talent and, and financing, which are obvious, but we've, we've actually reduced the spin-out time from what was originally eight, sometimes 10 months negotiation about IP to working with, with templates that allows us now to the same result in, in probably you know, a quarter of the time, which is beneficial for the deals, for the founders, and also for the co-investors. Okay, yeah, that is quite, quite a speed up, quite an accelerated timeline. Lisa, you are trying to build an ecosystem at the moment. What are some of the elements that you are needing to put in place? Or what did you find was already there when you came to the Midlands? I think what, what's brilliant is the universities have a, a, a track record of spinning out. So that's a great start. So we've got 126 alumni companies across the, uh, across the eight universities. Um, but I think to Tom's point, standardizing deal terms, and managing the speed of the transaction, I think you know, bringing that's that's the cost of the deal needs to come down so that you can then process more spinouts with a finite you know, resource of, of your own investment team. I think the the other thing that we're going to be on the journey is just the culture of working with researchers and establishing a spinout as one of the you know, really great things that researchers can do to bring their research to the world. And I think changing the slightly dirty feel of commercializing IP into something of you know, bringing groundbreaking innovation and solutions to the world. And that being a really positive, let's make this happen, let's make the impact of this big. So I think changing the, the culture around that. And then I think it's uh, the third thing is bringing talent in. And I know we've got a lot to talk about on talent and how you develop talent to be able to have successful startups. Talent is just key. Yeah. 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 We will, we will get to talent as well. And changing culture, that's, that's a, that's a tiny task as well. <laughs> Renee, I want to talk to you as well about this. As you said, you were with Johnson Johnson and then you became the CEO of, of Color Health. What was your experience of of an ecosystem, what what did you find was there and what was missing as a chief yeah. executive? So I have the luxury of being sort of in the heart of Silicon Valley. And so we have a wealth of talent. Um, we have a wealth of investors who are, can be very active in terms of their operating experience and background. Um, what was unique to what we're doing at Cala is that we are taking something that has historically been done. Um, neuromodulation is an implantable surgical solution for things like Parkinson's and essential tremors. And we're creating a wearable form factor. So for us, it wasn't just the technology innovation, it was the business model innovation that was really needed. And so it was interesting in the, in the journey we were on, we were very successful. We spun the technology out of Stanford in 2014, received our first FDA approval in 2018, and then uh, chose to go commercial uh, towards the end of 2019. So we had a very fast curve out of the gate because of the fact we're such a safe device. We have a, it's a class two device from an FDA perspective. And it comes in a wearable form factor. The, the journey then became building the innards of the business, that being our digital backbone to support our patients directly. And that was really a very different skill set. And so we garnered some of those that support at a later stage in our investment horizon, sort of in the, the Series C and Series D, looking to some more of the sort of business insights and digital uh, health kind of leadership, because we were, we were sort of through the technology phase and now how to do business model innovation, which is obviously not something that most universities are very good at. And so we really had to lean towards different layers of expertise uh, to grow the company. I, I will stay on you as well, but I do want to talk about talent. You being in Stanford and, and the kind of Silicon Valley ecosystem, did that mean that there was more than enough expertise going around to hire for your company? Oh, ta I mean, the war for talent here in Silicon Valley is always pretty heavy. Um, I think the the nice part is, is people self-select for startups and sort of the, the breakthrough innovation that we're delivering. 
And so it's it's um, it's been a nice journey we've been on in terms of ability to hire people. Though I will say the the, the COVID days were pretty tough because everybody was hiring and everybody was um, moving remote as well. So it was kind of a two forces working against us as a local hardware based startup where we need people to come in and actually build things. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Gautam, how do you attract your entrepreneurs? How, how do you bring in the talent? So that is the biggest challenge, right, in this model is how do we attract the right people? Where do we go find those entrepreneurs? How do we attract them? The way we've sort of approached this is, is can we provide them with the right ecosystem? Can we provide them with the right system where it makes it, hey, this makes it easy for them, basically, right? And where, where they can focus on what they are good at and then try and help them to sort of manage some of the other things. And that's sort of the focus for us when we look at, hey, how we attract this talent. And that's why when I mentioned in, in terms of the IP, in terms of even the curation that we did in providing the industry insights, right? Here's yeah. something that is ready-made to give in to you. And hey, there's something that you can sort of start off with an advantage. So, so that's what we try and do, get them connected with the investor networks, get them connected in terms of scaling up and how do we do that. And at the end of the day, even show, showing that the pathway towards commercialization, if, if you're successful in this incubation phase, you can do a scale-up phase and we are there with you. If you do that, we'll be there to do a field trial with you. And that's something that startups really are looking forward to, right? So yeah. we try and make that pathway visible to them, giving them the right system, and, and then hopefully get the right talent in. That, that makes sense. Do they have to come to Houston or are you operating nationwide for this or even internationally? So right now it's nationwide. They don't have to come to Houston because our technology partners, those universities, national labs, they are nationwide. And, and, and they deal directly with them. So we stay out. We, we don't get in, in the way because it's a true startup. Yeah. And it's for the entrepreneur and the, and the university lab to work things out. Tom, what kind of challenges do you face being based in Belgium, which I'm not sure a lot of people are moving to Belgium as beautiful as the country is? It, unfortunately, they're not. We, we have the benefit, of, oftentimes we say we have five CTOs. So finding people with R&D talent, people who are... Uh, fit to play a CTO role is not an issue. I mean, we have plenty of, of those resources available also at IMEC, which actually employs 4,500 highly skilled professionals. We are significantly lacking entrepreneurial talent, which is basically people who are able to translate a R&D, so an idea, to a product. And I think many of that's not in a, in a problem that is specific to, to the semiconductor industry. I think many early stage uh, companies are struggling with that, uh, with that issue. The difference is that in the US, as, as we just heard from Renee and from Gotham, that the talent pool is much more elaborate. So there is a war of talent going on for sure, but at least there's talent to be fought over. If you look at it in, from our perspective, um, there's uh, not a lot of entrepreneurial talent yet. I mean, we believe that success will attract, you know, success. So it will attract more, more entrepreneurs and more people who are willing to join the ecosystem, but that will still take some time. So we often have to uh, resort to find people internationally. I mean, we have in our portfolio companies, CEOs from uh, Canada, from the US, from France, from the Netherlands, um, all for companies that are uh, located in Belgium. That's possible, but I have to say, uh, I mean, maybe contrary to Gautam's point, having a CEO that is not part of the team, especially in this early stage, is not, is not ideal. I mean, we do prefer people who are close to the team, who are involved in the day-to-day -day activities. We've been in situations where we had CEOs on the West Coast for you know, a company in Belgium. I mean, the time difference alone made it almost impossible for that to be functional. So for us, we do prefer to have people in Belgium, I mean, so we, we encourage people to move over here. But as you said, Jerry, it's, it's not obvious to get people to pack up everything from, you know, to, to move to a different country to get involved in a company that's still very risky and that could, you know, go, go, go south very quickly. Uh, so in, in most cases, we do settle for at least temporarily 
have a CEO who's uh, international and remote from the team. But but we don't consider that to be the ideal solution. It's it, by lack of an alternative. That, that makes sense. Tom, I just want to clarify this. Tom, and you're absolutely right. When I meant that we don't, Chevron does not get into the ways, but we do expect the CEO to be closely working with the team, right? They can't be separated out. So, I want to ask Lisa about this as well. Are you hoping to attract talent from the Golden Triangle being London, Oxford and Cambridge? Or how do you plan to bring people to the Midlands? So I think I think there's a, a couple of things, um, and, and Tom's right. You, you've you you know, got Harry, You've got to create an attractive reason, and so one of the things is uh, we know wet labs are in short supply in the Golden Triangle, and so one of the things that uh, we will definitely be advertising and working as the you know the person that's joining the dots is packages that have office space, lab space, all at a ridiculously discounted position to try and, as you said, attract you know, the inward movement of, of talent and spin-ins. I also think that the working remotely you know, that we've proven through COVID times, it's actually really possible to, to have that. And I think that opens up other pools of talent uh, it, it gives you access to a broader group of, of talent by, by making a hybrid uh, work-life balance kind of the norm. And then third, I think, is just being really clever about how you build the ecosystem. I mean, in terms of what the startups need to survive. So it's not just the leadership talent of CEO. It's also being clever that the creature that is the wonderful brain that comes up with these great ideas is not necessarily the CEO. And I think, you know, that's something that I think a lot of people kind of know and understand. But I think a lot of researchers don't know that. They feel the weight of the burden of the spin out needs to be theirs. And I think that's something we need to address through clear communication, that that's not the expectation. Our expectation is, unless they want to, in which case we can help provide programmatic support for that and doing that you know, on a platform basis so that you can do that at scale for many people at the right time. But I think that's, that's to address that kind of belief. And then lastly, there's, you know, as I was saying, that ecosystem of support, it's, it's, we don't just need great founders. We actually need great experts in a whole pile of different things that the startups can't afford to you know, hire full FTEs for all of that. And I think that's why if you have a fund that's operating at sufficient scale, you're actually able to supply that kind of resource on an hours basis. And that, I think, unlocks very quickly you know, some of the barriers to scale for these startups is, is providing that ecosystem. Renee, talking of CEOs, though, you, you came in post-spin-out. Um, I think you'd invested before you became the CEO. What was that experience like? And, and were there any challenges coming in after that you may or may not have had if you'd been there from the start? Yeah, so I... It was the first money. Uh, so J and J and a, a, a traditional financial investor co-led the Series A. I actually sat on the board uh, through all of the funding rounds, and I actually raised my hand to be the CEO. We were doing a, a CEO search, and I was the person who actually had to speak to our founder. So my founder Kate Rosenbluth is still with the company. She's our chief scientific officer, and I, you know, I was the one who said, you know, Kate, they can never take the founder title away from you, right? And we're going to bring in a new leader. We're going to look for someone who has commercial experience. I've never commercialized anything in my life. And so I think the, 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 what the board saw in me was that I obviously knew the technology extremely well, knew the physicians that we were addressing, which are neurologists and movement disorder specialists. And we all believed that this was something that we needed to commercialize in a different way uh, because we shipped directly to a patient's home and we served that patient directly. And so there weren't a lot of CEOs who had uh, that, that, that medical device experience that also shipped directly to a patient's home. And so they said, well, we'll give, you know, we'll give Renee a shot at doing this. And so uh, first time CEO, I joined the company in August of 19. So I moved from my J&J board seat into the CEO board seat. And I wouldn't wish taking over a company at that time on any of my friends. I mean, going <laughs> through COVID and all of the pandemic, I mean, trying to commercialize a first-in-class technology, 
it has been incredibly rewarding to see how successful we are. And we have thousands of patients who use their devices in their home every day. They are getting tremendous tremor relief. They can get back to, to doing self-care and feeding themselves and dressing themselves. It's really very impactful. But again, what a rocky road we've been through. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can only imagine. We, we do have some, some audience questions that have come in as well. So I might move on to those to make sure that we actually get to them. The first one we got was from Martin Carroll, who's asked, what opportunities or barriers exist to work with university TTOs to, ev- to evaluate and license deep tech lab proven or protected IP, um, as opposed to opportunities with spin-outs, i.e. whether technology is not yet suitable for spin-out, or whether research academic does not want to be a founder. And then he says, surely this is a bigger opportunity in terms of volume than spin-outs and represents an innovation ecosystem gap. Sadly, we don't have someone from a TTO here who might be able to comment on this more specifically, but I might open up to perhaps our fund managers on the panel. Why do a spin-out? Why, why not a license? Why does a spin-out make sense? Well, right. uh, okay, go on. You go, Tom. I think it means the maturity of the technology. I think oftentimes, if you look at the technology ready, readiness level of a project within a university, could be interesting for a for a corporate. I mean, at least you know to get to get a feeling for you know the potential of it. But there's, I mean, our experience at least there's a very long way to go. And I'm I'm, I'm talking you know, on behalf of the semiconductor industry. So I mean, if, if life science are different, I mean that's obviously not my area of expertise. But the, there's still a long path to go and a significant amount to be invested before a technology could could even be considered to commercially relevant to a, um, to a corporate. So I think from that perspective, we see many corporates get involved in an, in an early stage with ventures because for a limited, rather limited investment, they can have some, some positive impact on the company, see the company develop, steer it a little bit, if that would be relevant or necessary. And then, I mean, at a later time, when probably, I mean, a significant amount of money already went into the company, they can still assess whether or not it makes sense for them to acquire. I mean, to to license in the technology uh, at the time while it's still within the R&D uh, or, or, or environment or uh, university environment, I think would be very early. I mean, for from a for semiconductor again, life science could be different, but that that I, I won't, I cannot see that happening in the industry that we're active in. Renee, you sort of jumped in at the beginning as well. Did you want to add anything? Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I've seen a, a really strong maturity develop, specifically in the healthcare field in particular, around uh, tech transfer offices know that they can't just send out a list of IP and say, you know, it's up for grabs. And, and so where they've been able to identify those things that are truly translational, they're just not, you know, curing cancer in a mouse. It's really something that can move into the, into the human realm. They actually put EIRs around it. They put money around it. They put business plans around it. And that to me becomes the opportunity, whether or not the founder wants to go with the asset or not. Typically, when something has more concrete path to market, a, you know, reason to believe, then I see those, those types of spin outs happening uh, much more readily from tech transfer offices than sort of the old list of IP assets we, could, we used to get uh, when I was back in venture. Yeah. Jerry, I. I, I... Just add one more point to, I think, elaborating what Tom said. When we look at it from our perspective, what are we good at? We are good at doing things at scale, right? We can do things big, okay? So it makes sense for us to get into licensing and all when things are available at scale rather than being at the R&D level. Yeah. We had a related question from from Pythia to Adapali, sorry as well, who asked, why would a researcher choose to license the technology to existing players to spin out a new company to commercialize themselves? Renee, I might ask you perhaps, if you know your founder, your, your chief scientific officer, was there ever a point in which they pondered licensing it to an existing player? Or were they always keen to create the spin out? The, the truth be told, my founder thought she was going to stay in academia. So I, <laughs> <laughs> so I had to convince her. And, and by the way, six weeks later, Calla was born. So it didn't take that much to convince her. I think the reality is, and maybe this is a Silicon Valley-esque view of things, but 
I think the reality is if you're if you want to derive good value for what you've developed, many of these projects are years and years of investment in a lab. You need to be able to to draw the path to it being translational and get it into into humans or into the right kind of research that can validate a bigger player putting value on it. I know when J&J has done a phenomenal job with their J&J innovation work, going after some early stage funding of projects, but it's not going to take it to the finish line, right? And so in order to really have an opportunity to get to the finish line, setting up a company or partnering you know, with, with a founder or entrepreneur, if you don't want to leave, leave your lab, I think is the right approach. And so full disclosure, our co-founder of Cala still has a lab at Stanford, right? And so he's still very involved with our technology, he helps on a lot of our publications, but he wanted to stay within the Stanford realm. And Kate, my chief scientific officer, moved into the, into the startup realm to start Cala. So I do think it's possible to do both, but I think you get more value if you can put it on its path to being a commercial entity. Yeah, yeah. Prithi also yeah. asked what, what the timeline funding and impact differences are. I'm not sure if anyone knows how to measure the difference of an impact between a license and a spin-out, please tell me. <laughs> I think there's a lot of people out there looking for that answer. I would look at it as a de-risking. I think the more the time de-risk, but also money de-risk. And so, yes, you have dilution when you do a startup. You have dilution when you, you start a new company because you're bringing in other investors and other dollars to the table, but you're also de-risking it and hopefully getting to some of those higher value inflection points where a license now is, is fairly meaningful. There's a you know, significant royalty. There's a significant upfront before something would just be licensed out of, out of a, a research lab may not get that kind of value. That's my two cents. Yeah. Good two cents. <laughs> I'm not sure if I interrupted Lisa earlier or if I uh, if I misheard that. I, I just had a, a, a couple of points um, on you spin out your little bit more master of your own destiny in license it disappears into the corporate and you, you you are then subject to sort of changes in leadership inside the corporate as to whether that still is a priority or remains a priority for the corporate to develop. So I think that's that's something kind of eyes wide open about licensing. And then the second point I want to make about, you know, spin out and is there a way to kind of uh, unlock that ecosystem? What is quite interesting is looking at the rate of spin outs when there is dedicated capital, you know, or, uh, you know, intelligent capital that is around. So Oxford is quite an interesting case study in this. I'm sure Stanford is the same, that Free there being an, the Silicon Valley ecosystem, what was the rate of spin-out companies? And it looks like it's one, two a year. And then you put, a, you put the ecosystem around it, and then you very quickly ramp up to 20. And with Oxford, it literally was a nine-month difference between one to two to 20. I mean, it, it's just that extreme. And so intelligent capital, I think, is a very clear unlock. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's a good point. I don't know if if people have seen the graph that OSE put out a few years ago and the point where OSE was founded. And yeah, as you say, it's one, two, it's maybe a handful of spinouts a year, and then it just sort of it explodes. It's it's kind of phenomenal that even something like Oxford that we now think of as kind of an innovation hotspot really still needed that intelligent capital to come in from the university itself, as it turns out, because no one else did it to really get the ecosystem going. We have a question from, from your old colleague as well, Lisa, from, from Lukasz Gabowski, um, who has asked a fairly broad question, and I'm not sure we will find an answer, but are there any market verticals that are best positioned for success with regards to spin-outs? I might open it up to you first, if you would like to answer that or try to. So I think that's a really, really interesting kind of layered question. Because spin-outs are just startups, right? And you want to say what's easy you know, for startups versus not easy. But I think I'd, I'd take a slant on it. Where can university spin-outs be differentiated versus spin-outs you know, out, out by themselves? And I think this is in deep tech and technology and life sciences. Because I think having a spin-out and having the university ecosystem, access to patient capital, access to grant, access to that infrastructure, I think is so much easy to support uh, the spin-out going through, as Tom said, those TRL levels. And, and then you've got the intelligent capital sitting there patiently, you know, supporting and, and then able to spin out at the right moment in time, as Renee said, when a path to you know, translational 
impact is there or commercialization. So uh, for me, the, the, the place is great science, deep tech, where you, you need that bit, a bit of patient capital. Yeah. Tom, Gautam, I'm, I'm assuming you agree with the deep tech aspect as well. Yeah, we, we do. And, and from our perspective, especially because deep tech gives you typically the necessary IP protection that you can definitely use in case the, you know, the, the, the development of the company is slower than you expected or you run into some, you know, some challenges along the way. Technologies that are not disruptive and that are, let's say, uh, incremental uh, innovation on, on existing technologies, uh, oftentimes it's, 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 it's a race to the top. And I think from a especially European startup that's a very dangerous game to play. So, so we do like companies that are strongly rooted in technology that have a strong IP position, which means that not you know the first the first setback they have does not mean it's the end of the company. So I think we, we're we're deep 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 tech investors from from that perspective. You rarely will see us in in deals that are I mean let's say more go to market type approaches or or very you know. Because uh, consumer-focusing approaches, I mean, we're, we're really looking for the disruptive innovation. Same here. I mean, when we look at what are the universities and labs good at, and that's basically they're good at doing basic science. On the other hand, you have these startup companies and you have the environment out there, and they're good at getting those incremental technologies, in, incremental benefits, and taking them to the market fast, right? So, so we're really looking at some of the disruptive step change technologies that can come out of the university's labs and that sort sort of makes sense. I think this does link quite nicely to the question of, of capital as well, which which has come up obviously. With deep tech, there are sometimes really long lead times. If we're talking fusion, it's it's literally decades. What are the challenges around this as as an investor? How do you approach this? And are you better placed as a CVC to cope with those long lead times as opposed to perhaps a traditional VC, which is looking for an exit in, in five to maybe even 10 years maximum. I might um, shoot that question to Gautam as our resident sure. CBC person. So, so we, we do invest for different reasons. Financial returns, of course, is one of them because we, we, we want that. But there are also strategic reasons for us to invest. You talked about fusion. We have invested in actually two fusion companies. So it's not something strange, right? But, but over there, again, it's more strategic. It's more for us from a learning experience, monitoring the space, trying to understand what's happening out there, as opposed to, hey, here's something that we want today, and let's try and get a return. So, so we, have, we do take a portfolio approach. Some of it is for today. Some of it is for tomorrow. Again, each one has its reasons, and and in the investments for tomorrow, yes, we understand it's going to take a long time, and and we're happy to wait for this. But there are a lot of different learnings that we get from that that we're looking forward. Tom, you have to deal with quite a range of LPs from insurance firms, banks, government. How do you sell them this proposition that what you invest in may not necessarily lead to financial return in? Well, that's, that's <laughs> what well, we actually do sell, that it will lead to financial return. I mean, that would, would, would significantly hinder our proposition if we would present to them that this may not be financially successful. I think the, the key to it is that, um, I mean, we do realize, as you very rightly so said, um, Cherry, that it will require a lot of money. I mean, for hardware companies, the type we invest in, it will require a lot of money and significant amount of time before they even get to a commercial, you know, to the per point of commercialization. As a result, you need to make sure that first of all, you you are in the company early on with a significant stake, because obviously, for a fund of a certain size like ours, we cannot build up our interest in a company along the way. I mean, that the Black Rocks can do that, that the Bailey Giffords can do that. For us, that's impossible. So we need to be in very early on with a significant investment, which means that we need to be able to assess the technology risk better than anyone else. And that you need a fund of at least a certain size 
that you can follow through the, the, the B rounds and the C rounds and, and remain relevant in, in the company. And then I would almost say hope that the company has evolved far enough at that point that the private equity or the later stage VC investors will step up and take it from there and kind of carry the company to the, uh, to the exit. So the timeline in itself is not necessarily the issue. I mean, it, it may be that we have to wait 10 years for an exit, but if it's a successful exit, I mean, that, that nobody is, is bothered too much about that. But getting the, point, the company to the point where it can be picked up by the next type of investor that then will we'll bring it to the next level is for us a, a crucial task. And, and we're very fortunate and, and happy that we've seen that in many of our portfolio companies that have been successful. I mean, we've, we've invested so far with our first fund, I mean, 70 million. The companies that we've invested in raised uh, over 600 million by now. So it gives you an idea that it does require quite, and no exits so far. So it does give you an idea of the amount of money it takes to get companies to the level that there are potential exit targets. And, and we're aware of that. And it's a very specific game we play. But I mean, so far, our investors have been very happy with the prospects that we can uh, offer them. Yeah. I might stay on you for a second as well. Looking at your co-investors, do you tend to co-invest with corporate VCs? Yeah, a lot. Do you Most find that they have the same patience? Well, I, I do believe, uh, yes. I mean, the, the problem is not the patience. The problem is that it, so, certain corporate VCs, and again, not all corporate VCs are created equally, but especially the ones that invest only for strategic reasons and, and for, for those who are the, the financial return is, is less important. It's not always easy to deal with it in, in the context of a, a growing company because they can only acquire strategic interest once. So they're, they're great parties to step in in an early stage. Uh, they give credibility to the company. As Gautam said, they, they know technology oftentimes very well and they know what it will take to bring the technology to the next level. But when it comes to funding, and again, definitely not generalizing because there's corporate VCs out there who are, you know, very uh, return driven and, and who uh, are participating in following rounds and have KP uh, financial KPIs. But some of them, I mean, invest purely for strategic reasons. That could make it a little bit more difficult because you have a, a strategic investor on the on the on the cap table who does not invest, continue to support the company financially, but who does sometimes has an impact on the potential exit route. So it, it's, a, it's a balance you have to find, though I have to say the last years and, and probably also thanks to a lot of the initiatives that Global Corporate Venturing has put out there, I have to say that most, if not all of the corporate uh, VCs we work with have been very commercially driven and very much aligned with the, um, with the, with the goals of the, uh, of the other investors. And I think it's the only way to be, you know, uh, to to build a sustainable uh, organization from a, from a corporate perspective. Otherwise, people will just not. If you do it differently, they won't want you in the deals anymore. Yeah, yeah. Renee, I want to ask you about this as well. You came from from Johnson and Johnson to be the CEO. How? Or, or what was that experience like? Did you invest thinking that this will take? many, many years before it gets FDA approval and before it gets reimbursement and, and all those kinds of things. And, and how did that influence your decision to make an investment in Cala Health before you became CEO? Yeah. So the the when I was looking at early stage investments and, and J&J did, we were doing more and more in sort of its earlier days. J&J, JJDC has been around for 50 years. We actually just celebrated the 50th anniversary. So it's a you know, longstanding player in the CVC world. And they've ebbed and flowed in terms of going earlier or later stage. And, and so I think we had done a lot of early stage investing. And I always said, I needed to see a reason to believe. And so the, the important work that was done by Kate and our co-founder from Stanford was they had treated about eight patients with a works-like prototype of our technology. And I'm an economics major. I do graphs in college. And I, even I could tell when the device was off, the hands were shaking and the device was, after the device stimulation happened, the hand was, you know, was, was still. So that to me was the reason to believe. I would say that over time, the, the support we've needed, it is a long journey in healthcare. Healthcare is not for the faint of heart. I mean, we, we were lucky in getting a relatively early 510K de novo approval 
in 2018, which is only about four years after we had, had started the company, actually less than four years. And now we're on this very massive journey to get the device reimbursed, right? It's a very expensive technology. Many of our patients are over the age of 65. They live on a fixed income. And so access and affordability is now kind of the, the path we're on. Did I believe that it, this would be hard? Yes. It, you know, it is, it is a very hard journey. I'd say that we've been fortunate that because there aren't a lot of solutions for these patients, meaning there's a lot of first-line drugs that they can, they can take, but they have poor side effects, and then there's surgery, and there's really not a lot in between. And so many of the payers have, in fact, adopted us and, and established contracting for us, but it's onesie-twosie. It's not like you go get a, a, you know, a national health system like in the UK or something that decides they're going to support your technology. We have to go state by state to get each blue, like the Blue Shield of California, and then we have Blue Shield of Illinois. And so it, it, is a, it is a long journey, but the team's ready for it. And I think we all believe that this is an opportunity on behalf of these, these patients to find them a, a proper solution. So it's, it's that kind of long-term investor mindset that we've needed to bring to the table. And now we're in that journey. You know, we're, we've, we've come through our FDA path. We're making our way on the reimbursement path, um, but by no means are we done. We are sadly running up to, to the full hour. So, so we are nearly done, sadly. I wanted to ask one last question of, of, of all of you, which is, what is a piece of advice that you would give to investors or specifically CVCs looking for investment opportunities or partnerships with, with universities and spin-outs or for spin-outs that want to work with CVCs? Let's start with Renee again, because you are at the top of my screen as well, and then move our way over to... Uh, Tom. Well, I'm, I, am, I am fortunate. I sit here today as the CEO of Cala. Yes, J&J was the lead investor, but we have had numerous. We have over five CVC groups that have invested in Cala. So clearly, we are firm believers in working with corporate venturing groups. I come back to my comment about, obviously, when I was in my venture seat through 2019, I saw many, many IP lists. I do think the some of the more advanced technology transfer groups are now putting more structure around these opportunities. So I would, I would encourage CVCs to spend time evaluating these technologies. There's such great work that goes on. It needs to be translated. I'm, I'm in healthcare. So for me, it's all about the patients and can we, can we help patients live better lives and live fuller lives? So please take the time to go and look at those universities. Right. Thank you, Renee. Tom, any advice? No, I, I, important, especially for, for the newer corporate VCs is be, be fully aware of who you're talking to in the sense that. R&D centers, universities, I mean, you cannot expect to have a working product from, you know, from, from day one. And you should, you should be fully aware that the road will be long and it will be difficult. I mean, there's quite, there'll be quite some uh, challenges to overcome. And, and you should be fully aware as a corporate where you expect to bring value during that process rather than, I mean, uh, be a builder and not a consumer. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Lisa, you are about to start fundraising for your fund, but do you have any advice for future co-investors, perhaps? So, so two, two bits of advice. A bit one is on getting corporates in. And I think life sciences, I think, is, is a little bit ahead on collaboration of strategics in life sciences than in some of the other deep tech areas. So, so I think that getting multiple strategics in early is hugely helpful for the industry and, and for the startups. I think startup, think about that, about bringing in. I think also think about the corporate. Is that a corporate that's a potential customer or is that a corporate that is a potential acquirer? And I think thinking about that quite ta you know, tactically upfront is important. The second bucket of advice is exactly what we've heard from the, the community is CVCs have uh, a bit more patience. They, they can see the long-term value of stuff. And I think when you're taking money in, be careful that you don't end up taking investment in from someone who's not aligned with your timeframes. And I think that you know, these, like the specific vehicle that we're setting up, Midlands Mindforge, you know, it's, it's very specifically a long-term investment vehicle. And, and we're having to set separate structures up in order to facilitate that. We're having to think very carefully about how to provide liquidity as an opportunity for our investors. Because, of course, if you're not doing a sink it and realize it fund, then how do your, your patient investors 
actually realize returns. So there's a lot of thinking about how do you set up your decent, well thought through patient capital vehicles. And I think it's important that these are important, you know, this is the kind of vehicle you want if you're if you're trying to build up you know, disruptive IP. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're very right there, Lisa. Thank you. Gautam, final words from you as well. Do you have any advice for other CVCs? So so this is how I will put it. Should CVCs sort of invest in labs or universities? Let's talk about the US. I mean, I'll, I'll put two numbers in front. One is $6 billion. Okay, That's what the US government spent on the federal labs and the national labs to develop technologies. Okay, Guess how much that the federal government gave to the universities in terms of grants. And this is a number about two, three years ago. It's $42 billion. Okay, so you definitely have pearls out there. And, 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 and that's what we should look at. On the other hand, I would say, hey, the TT offices, they know what they're doing. Okay, they know the system. They know how the universities work. So I think as far as CVCs go and the TT, we should find a win-win situation where sort of we can work together and, and sort of get, get these pearls out from there. Amazing. Thank you, guys. Um, and, and thank you to all of you on the panel for taking time to discuss all these important topics today. Um, and thank you for all our listeners as well. Talking Tech Transfer is hosted by me, Thierry Helis. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and peruse our archive of more than 50 interviews. This podcast is a production by Global University Venturing, a Morsonia Limited publication. You can find our website at globalventuring.com forward slash university, on Twitter at GU Venturing, and on LinkedIn as Global University Venturing. Our sound engineer is Mark Chatterley from In-Ear Production. You can find out more about them at inearproduction.com. If you have any comments or are interested in being a guest on a future episode, feel free to email me at thehelis at globalventuring.com. That's T-H-E-L-E-S at globalventuring.com. We'd also really love it if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts, and if you haven't yet, do recommend this podcast to your friends and colleagues, or maybe even share it on LinkedIn or Twitter. Until next time, goodbye. Do 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 do